0: Hi, good morning. Uh, So, uh, I'll be teaching this morning. Uh, I was asked by Fred to kind of cover uh, perhaps contrast or difference of certain types of theological disciplines, and everyone's like, can we leave now? So, but the reality is I'm just kind of going to contrast and kind of define a a little bit of, of, of a few different disciplines of theological study, and then going to kind of just go to a couple of scriptures and kind of point out how, and hopefully as a a helpful use, is more than likely um, you guys have been studying, you know, by subject, which is known as dogma or dogmatics, or probably systematic theology is the more modern term for it. And then, so this morning, I'm going to be talking about what's known as biblical theology, which even the name itself is a bit of a misnomer because it's not like any of the other ones aren't using the Bible as the base, as they all are. Uh, which, but it is quite different. It's looking for different things, and it's and it's kind of explaining different things in a different way. And so, I want to point out probably how you both use, even in in a way maybe unknown, both dogmatics or systematics, as well as biblical theology, as well as some others. And so it's going to be just kind of a brief intro, and then going to go kind of explain a little bit, and then kind of go to a few passages to kind of just show um, how, how these different disciplines might, might interact with a different text. And like I said, it, it's not going to be that eye-opening. You're probably going to see like, oh, this, I do this all the time, or you know, that kind of thing. So uh, let's pray and, and uh, get started. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the Lord's Day. We thank you that uh, we are able to gather together here and celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And God, as your people, um, now turn our hearts and minds, uh, focus us on, on the discussion of who you are and your word. Lord, ultimately, may this guide us, lead us, turn our affections more to Christ. Lord, let us be a people of of repentance, of mercy. And God, for, for each and every person that is gathered today, may you lead them in this coming week from Lord's Day to Lord's Day, the opportunity to share their faith. Lord, may they seek you as they flee from temptation. And God, may we continue to live this life faithfully while continuously looking for the time of your return. We pray in this time now the glory of your name. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, So, Kind of just to to go with a very like water hose beginning here. What you've been dealing with is systematic theology, uh, the idea of of taking particular areas of of study, like like angels. Just thinking alphabetically, so you would, you take angels and you're like, oh, there's a word. There's there's something mentioned in angel. What's that? It's in the Old Testament. What's it doing? okay that's interesting take a note of that and then you go through the next portion of the old testament uh, there's something else that's an angel this one is acting a little differently it's, it's called the angel of the lord and seems a little bit stronger than the other ones i'm going to make that note as well and then you keep going through the progression of the old testament every time an angel's mentioned what are angels doing what are they, what is their provenance like how are they in contrast to the rest of the created order This is how they're different from man. This is how they're different from the other creatures of the dust, it seems. And then you go to the New Testament, and you say, oh, here's angels again. What are they doing now? What is this revealing, perhaps, that it didn't reveal in the Old Testament? I'm going to write that down as well. I'm going to take note of that. By the time you get all the way to the end of the New Testament canon, where there's a lot of angels in the final book, you're kind of like, okay, now I'm going back to... The very beginning the first time an angel is mentioned in the old testament all the way to the final time one is mentioned in revelation and now i've because i've taken all these prodigious notes and paid a lot of attention to it i now at least have an understanding of how the bible as a whole talks about angels and teaches on angels and now i have a very well-developed angelology but then of course you can't just have that and go through the rest of your christian life going well i know about angels and so you have to know about angels in contrast to what? Demons, what else? Humans, creation, yeah, the one who created them, like, like how are they relate to God? What do you do with Job 1 and 2? Like there's all of these things where then you can see as it begins to branch out, you can't just have a doctrine of angels. You have to have a doctrine of, of all of these other areas That rightly makes you understand that when angels interact with humans, because you have studied what the Bible tells you about man, you understand why the interactions looked at the way they do. A a being of a higher order that is close to God reveals himself to, while the pinnacle of creation, fallen and sinful, sees an angel, what do they usually do? Worship. Worship. And suddenly, so like, no, no, no! You know, like the idea is—you see all the—but you know that that's predominantly what fallen man does. He's looking for something to worship other than God, and especially created things. So, that's dogmatics, and it goes through through every kind of aspect or subject or systematics, and that's kind of the generally the most well-known uh, theological discipline. But there's actually, uh, historically at least, there there's there's four. There's four kind of major disciplines. And the first is called exegetical theology. Now, what do you know about the word exegetical? What is that keying you off on? Sorry? Expository? Okay, what else? What is exegesis? You're getting pointed at. Someone's pointing at you behind you. (laughs) Yeah, you're drawing out what the text says. It's exegesis is to take the text and, and draw out what's clear in it. And so you have exegetical theology, which, which is kind of dealing with what is the text saying in a, in a, very, in a very base kind of, of, of way. And then you have, excuse me, <clears throat> and then you have historical theology, Now, historical theology is the one that's a little bit different. Anyone know what historical theology is? It's actually related really closely to systematic theology. So take angels, for example. All the stuff we talked about with angels. Now, after I've built this system of theology around everything where angels are mentioned in the Bible... And now that I've contrasted it with all the other places that angels interact, now I'm going to look not in the Bible, but I'm going to look historically in the writings of the church to see what has been taught about angels. So historical theology is a study of other than canonical history of how people have interpreted angels. Now, this generally takes two tracks. Either history has become equal to Scripture, like say in in what is kind of the the Church of Rome today and, and different times in history, or you can take the other extreme and jettison history altogether and say, I've got this. And so neither approach is actually healthy, um as if uh one of the things uh, i've mentioned before probably more in small group conversations like that if you do your exegetical theology you look at the text if you do your systematic theology and you're building this this kind of uh idea around this this logical progression of how angels just using that example over and over again has developed in all of the corpus of of scripture and then you go to history and go, well, I want to see how the early church taught about angels. And you look and you're like, mm, that's not what I got. Oh, what I got was way different. They must have been wrong. And then so then you go like to the medieval church and you're like, no, I'm not seeing anything like what I'm writing down here. And then you go through Reformation to the modern church. You're like, literally no one's ever thought about angels quite like I do. They all got it wrong. That's a bad way to use that's if you ever come upon a moment like that where you go no one has ever taught the scriptures and this idea like I have please put down the pencil and the paper back up and call theology 911 it's also a good way for you to understand if you're hearing something from someone especially because there's such a an ability to to listen to anyone at any time and any type of, without maybe really understanding where a person's background is and what they believe, there's always, that's always going on. People are always coming up with, like, innovation. And, and theological innovation is not like, I don't know, technological innovation. It's generally bad, especially when you have 2,000 years of history. While certainly there's bad theology throughout the history of the church there's a lot of really 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 good theology so as a practice and this is not even what i'm getting at but if you're doing exegesis if you're doing what do you mean you don't have to know greek or hebrew i mean you're taking your bible and you're you're really meditating on what it's saying you're like i think this is what it's saying i think this is what it's saying about in the whole bible history is a good way church history and seeing how it's taught throughout history is a good stopgap for you to kind of make sure you're not completely bonkers or just interpreting irresponsibly. Or if you find that the people that agree with you are condemned heretics, then you can just go, okay, I, I, I got this wrong somewhere. So historical theology is a non... You're not using the canon itself. You're using the topics of systematic looking back throughout history to find how it was taught throughout history. Uh, Then you have, so we have exegetical, historical, systematic, which we've talked about. Systematic is is the the logical progression of each kind of topic that you would go on um, in a comprehensive manner, both Old and New Testament. And then the final is called practical theology. And this one's pretty easy to define, right? What's practical theology? It's, It's when study ends and life begins and so how you how you apply what your understanding because your understanding like when we use these kind of academic words we all make a mistake if we think of it as an academic exercise you're pursuing God's word in such a manner to make sure that you're making boundaries for the fact that you are a fallen human by, by making these kind of, these, these boundaries to where this is how I'm going to study the Bible, this is how I'm going to make sure that, that I, I'm following kind of the thought of, the, of what the scriptures are teaching. And then practical theology is the practice or the praxis of dogma. It means that based on all of this, this changes the way I think about myself, this changes the way I think about God, about angels, about all these things, and so this, this actually impacts the way that I live. Does does that make sense? So what are some of the areas of practical theology? For the people who know it, you speak up because no one else is speaking up. Worship, yeah. Parenting. Parenting, good. Relationships, sure. Church government. Like all the ways that it's applied, all the ways that you work out your faith in your life is a practice and that and that's that's just the old way of describing it you don't have to say praxis I I wrote a letter to uh, the board of our school a couple weeks ago and of Christina works there so she demanded that she be able to read it and she's like what what is praxis I was like it's it's practice and she's like can I just can you just put practice I was like no so it sounds way cooler because look up here I said dogma and then down here, I said, practice, you see, it makes, it's, she's like, oh my gosh. Anyway, marriage relationships is practice. So yeah, all of this to say, just to give you an idea of, this is historically how the church has broken down theological categories. And so, to go all the way back to what, what the difference is and why, talking about what the difference between biblical theology and systematic theology is is simply to say systematics is really the most popular um, historically but biblical theology has really taken a I don't even know what the right word would be I would say about 50 years ago there was a handful of books with the title biblical theology and it's really taken an explosion in the last decade and a half to where the the number of that and so I want to point out like why it's important to have a proper biblical theology and what the difference is. And I'm going to go to Genesis 3, just as an exercise to kind of, if you have your Bible, and show you, And so, by the way, one of the probably the modern author who who influenced this 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 discipline more than any is a is a, a guy named Gerhardus Voss. He was a professor at Calvin Seminary, um, and he was most well known for being a a um, a, a teacher of pedagogy or preaching at Princeton when Princeton still was worth anything. And so he was, a, he was a, um, a professor at Princeton for several decades and had people like J. Gresham Machen, Cornelius Van Til, and others who would go on to be, be big in, in, the, in the world of, of the um, orthodox fight against modernist theology. But, but Voss wrote a book called Biblical Theology, and he wrote in the introduction that he hated the word, he hated that title, because it brought in all kinds of questions that took away from what they were trying to say. So in biblical theology, there's not an emphasis, well, we're the theology that's biblical, kind of lang- like lingo that you hear today in certain things. Well, that's not biblical. That's not biblical. That's, that's not the point. The better word, the better phrase he would say is like the history of of, redemptive, uh, of God's redemptive plan or the history even of special revelation. So it gives you a a key to where some of the differences are, and I'll show you what I mean. If you're looking at the history of redemption, the key verse is John 5.39 that Voss uses and other uses. and, And is anyone familiar with that off the top of their head? Jesus tells the disciples that all of what is about him. The old, the law, the writings... Everything is pointing to him. And so the interpretive device of biblical theology is a real simple question of how is this pointing to Christ? So whereas that's kind of the the avenue, and and it gets a lot deeper than just that because one of the longest things that you'll study if you study like a biblical theology class, like in seminary or something like that, is is redemptive history history prior to the writing of the Word, where it goes back into to the, the, the triune uh, ontological aspects of the Trinity and salvation and all these kind of things. But if you just take the simple idea of what does the law, the prophets, and the writings, and what areas is it pointing to Christ? And so you would ask the question like, the garden, Noah, abraham all of the the patriarchs exodus like you just go through the history of the progression of what's happening with all the old covenant and how is that pointing to at all times to christ because if christ is letting his disciples and his opponents know that's all about me in what ways without you know making stuff up like like where jesus is in the footprint of of every kind of animal that walks along a trail and that rather these these big thematic things that happen in the old testament and so to contrast systematics and biblical theology look at the account pre uh after the fall it's after after the he's walking in the garden who told you you were naked in 11 the woman he, he, you know, uh, who told you that you were naked, have you eaten the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what have you done? And the serpent deceived me and I ate. So, So take a note there at kind of the fall of man, if you will, starting in 11. And even in 13, the serpent deceived me. And then after this, you have a series of curses leading up to 15. In 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, speaking to the serpent, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, when you go all the way back up to 11, what is it that you see about man? Prior to the eating of the fruit. what's What changed? What was immediate? Their understanding of nakedness. Yeah. And then after that, where they were once openly walking in fellowship with God in the garden, where are they now? They're hiding. So instinctually, their sin is causing them to assume that they can hide it From God. And so we see immediately what? The effect of sin on humanity. Now, after that, God asks a series of questions to the man and then makes a pronouncement to the woman and then begins curses. The curses that will fall on the woman, the curse that will fall with the man and the curse on the serpent. Now, the curse on the serpent is where I want to take notice. Enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, what is that known as, the technical term? Yeah, proto-evangelium, what does that mean? The first gospel. So, if you're having a, a... a moment where you you've heard that before from the pulpit you've heard it in other classes this is called the first giving or the first telling of the gospel or redemption now in the midst of all the curses and all the falling where is the redemption in this you two can't answer <laughs> Do you see something redeeming in that verse in the midst of the curses? Something hopeful? I see some nods. Anyone want to speak up? So if. You shall your head. Right, what does that mean? That the offspring of the woman was going to prevail over. Good, yeah, yeah. So, so, the idea is that this one, this serpent, who seemingly is an alien or invades garden, God's paradise, and is able to tempt humanity at this point who is able equally to sin or to not sin. And then they, then they, they, we know what they choose... And they sin, and it it creates then this new dynamic between God and his creation, and also the the perpetuation of, of humanity moving forward, what it will look like. And yet in the midst of it, there's a promise. And the promise is, in the midst of the worst moment, there at the beginning of the fall, God promises to destroy the work of the serpent. And so this is where I'm trying to get to. From here, what biblical theology does that's that's unique and different from systematics is it makes a, if you put like a, a circle on that verse in your Bible, and then now just imagine a straight timeline where you're marking from that moment forward, moments Clear moments of the woman's seed and redemptive language. Does that that make sense? And so, if you wanted to, you could go, okay, this is good news. And in the next chapter, what happens? The woman's seed is introduced, and one seems to be godly, and one seems to be not. And then what happens to her seed? He's killed right? Abel dies. And then you're like, oh. And then what happens after that? Who's born? Seth. And then Seth, after Seth is born, what is the phrase that's used? Yeah, so there's languages like, oh, this is this. And so you're, you're looking at this kind of linear thought in, in biblical theology of redemption. And you're looking forward to this one, to the seed. And so where that is different is you're now, you're, you're already have your answer because you're in the church age. You already know the answer is Christ. But now when you're moving forward, you see that these moments where Jesus is telling people like, that's about me. He's letting them know that the rescue, the redemption, the hope that was looked for in all these moments in the old covenant was looking forward to him. And so in many ways, biblical theology, because of the way it is, based on how some people's minds work, is a much easier flow of understanding than, say, what I described earlier about make a comprehensive doctrine of theology about angels, where it's like, I'm talking about Jesus and his redemption and how, how we're moving forward. Does, does that make sense? Are there questions at the moment or comments? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I'm sorry. No, it is. It's looking forward to Jesus. That that is the answer, is Jesus. But what you're following in the Old Testament is over and over again this emphasis on the Son on a son over and over again so the 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 theme of of the old covenant or the old testament is finding that one that's that's the kind of the the delineation from Seth and that's why there's a celebration with Seth and then there's Noah and there's even though there's there's sin and death there's a celebration of of Noah's righteousness and then you have then you have Shem and then from Shem would come Abram and then from Abraham you have all these kind of marks of going through the Old Testament where you finally get to uh, the end of Genesis where you have the rewards that are given to the sons of Israel and Judah is the one who will rule and have the, the scepter and then from Judah eventually you get to David and then it's progressed even further where it talks about David's kingship and one who will come after him and so you're always looking forward to the seed is what's being looked for and and so the verse is only talking about Christ but the people in the old covenant were looking for that one and that's why there's such an emphasis on always this celebratory Christ figure if you will in the old testament does that does that make sense correct I I can't hear quite. Were theologians like Paul doing biblical theology? <laughs> no, it's not cool because we started. But that's a good question. Um, yeah. So so when when you have the the New Testament authors and like, like I mentioned John five, what is the emphasis as they quote fully or make allusions to? Every, almost every single book of the Old Testament when they're talking about Christ. is, is they're, they're, they're letting the audience know whether they're predominantly Jewish to where they would have known the scriptures. And so they're being confronted with, you, you know, Christ is the one you've been waiting for. You, you, there's no longer, and so they point back to the, 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 the word to the Old Testament, and then you see it all the way up to Revelation. There's this constant drawing. The Old Testament narratives, poetry, histories, prophecies—all these things are all being pulled and placed directly into the person and work of Christ. Like he's the one. And so, um, I also would challenge the idea that anyone thinks doing theology is that cool. But at least, at least people I talk to. But, but yeah, so I'd say, I'd say what we call biblical theology or a history of God's redemptive work is, is starting in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, they're looking back and drawing it forward uh, for the people to, sh- to show people Christ. Here's the one. Here's the one who was promised when our ancestors fell and in our own state of rebellion, sin, and hopelessness, This one Jesus Christ is the only hope, and that's where you have the, um, as Stephen mentioned, the first giving of the gospel back here in Genesis 3 is is tied specifically to this, the real seed, just like he's the real Passover, and and, and the real temple, and like all of these things are are shadows, as the author of Hebrews would say, to the one who is Christ. So, um, does that make sense? Sure. Yeah, of course. Mhm. Yeah, where they're going through the history of Israel. Yeah. No. <laughs> story time before you die. Well, I can clearly see all the stones you you have. Let me tell you a story before I die. Uh, yeah. No, no, that's exactly what they're doing. They're 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 especially in Stephen's case. Saying that facetiously, but seeing his own end before him, uh, his last act is to show them their own responsibility to believe and repent. And, and so he goes back to the whole history. And then that's a great thing in particular about Stephen's speech, is it sounds like he's just reminding them of all their, their glory as God's people and then all of a sudden it turns at the end by telling them that they are responsible for the murder of Messiah. And, and kind of like, so yes, he's, it's always this idea of looking at the scriptures and what everyone was waiting for. Well, it's already arrived. He's already arrived. And he's already ascended. I mean, in the point of Acts where this is happening. But yes, that is exactly what they're doing. You look like you were going to say something. No. And so the only other thing that I would say about the the reason I use that account because we talked about systematics earlier, and I talked about the line like making a distinction like redemptive history from this moment moving forward, is where the difference is. And this is this is Voss. This is this is not mine. But it's been helpful to me in my own thinking about it. Like take that verse fifteen. the the pro evangelion and you make it as a theological point that you're moving forward like this is about christ It's, it's it's about redemption systematics instead of making a line makes a circle around it and then it goes looks at it and and kind of asks the questions that i was leading up by asking um what what is this saying about god what is this saying about man what is this saying about whoever the serpent is at this point, what is this saying about the seed or the offspring of the woman? And then each point becomes its own theological study. I want to understand fully what the totality of the Bible says about the serpent, right? And then what it's saying now about humanity. And that one comes pretty quick because the next act is murder. And then, but, but then you have to wait quite a while for the serpent, don't you? If you're going through the Bible as a whole. But that's how systematic differs. It's, it's, it's focusing on comprehensive, logical progression of understanding. And, and what I want to say is, one is not better than the other. And also, how many of you, even though I'm, I'm a long-winded explanation, how many of you, without using those titles have done these things in your own study, right? I mean, most people, and so it's just that, it's one of those things where when you think of a theologian, don't think of the bow tie in a classroom with a big dusty book or something like that. If you are in Christ, guess what? You're a theologian. You have thoughts about God, and, and it's important that your thoughts are based on something, particularly special revelation, specifically God's word revealed. And so, and so when we talk about these divisions, it's just trying to give you a picture of, oh, this is, this is what I'm doing. And so when you hear like from the pulpit or something like that, where a, a passage is being broke down um hopefully exegetically this is what's coming from the scriptures this is where it is and you might have like a specific teaching that that really is trying to show you how this idea of of whatever it may be is tied to that same idea whether it's god or man or sin to the whole of scripture which is which which discipline one subject but what does it say about it in all of scripture? systematics right or dogmatics but then hopefully during that same sermon there's a point where you're pointed to the fact that you need to understand that it this is all about ultimately fulfilled in who christ and in your own even as a believer your own inability leads you to a place at times even in as a redeemed person where you can be drawn back to hopelessness and you have to be reminded like no my hope ultimately relies in christ's work not mine not the fail my own failures not other people's failures who who get me in this way but rather it's always always i'm supposed to focus on the fact that the seed the hope the redeemer the long-awaited for one has saved me and so so the way you interact with Scripture, you're already doing this. And so, really, an practical theology we've already talked about, it, it's how you live out what you believe and think and all those things. The one that's probably not used most often is historical theology, because people, some other people in the room who, who enjoy reading about stuff like this or, or have made a discipline of it, like would say, evangelicalism has had a bad reaction to history or using history as, or I'll say Protestantism, but really not. Evangelicalism has a bad history of its reaction to history of the church or the historical teachings of the church has had. Why is that? I don't know. My hands are still up. Anti-Catholic bias, right. Okay. Which is ignorant. And what I mean by that, it's, 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 I'm not insulting anyone, I hope. It means it's a lack of understanding of how helpful the teachings of the church can be. Meaning that if you pick all of church history and say, well, Roman Catholicism has ruined it, it shows a misunderstanding of the progression of the history of the church. You have plenty of writings in the first five centuries of the church that are exceedingly helpful and utterly biblical and and, and amazing to read you have yeah there's quite a bit of ugly from the sixth century to to the 12th but there's a lot of good in there there's a lot you can read from scholastics that you might not agree on everything that are very uplifting aquinas is not a curse word i'm just saying like do I agree with everything he wrote? No, I disagree with quite a bit, but he, he wrote a lot that you as an evangelical, particularly as you view or oftentimes defend Christianity by looking to the cosmos or order or things like that, that's all Aquinas. And so often we take these kind of radical steps in evangelicalism. Well, there's the, I have to throw out all things that are not the Bible, and I'm just—it's just me and my Bible, but that's not true, and it shouldn't be that way. As we talk about, like next week um, is what's known as what day? Not your birthday. Reformation. Reformation Day. Yeah. Well, I mean, the reformers did not reject history; they embraced it. As a matter of fact, that's how they actually contended with the Church of Rome was actually pointing to the sources that Rome held as authority. Rome held the traditions as authority. They held the church fathers as authority. So Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, all these guys were pointing to what? Well, here's why you're wrong in the scriptures, but here's why Augustine agrees with me that you're wrong. There is an embracing of the fact that the church has 2,000 years of rich history. And so this has become a, a diatribe to say don't reject, church history but if you are practicing your systematic and biblical theology in the way that you approach scripture when you come across errant teaching in history and you read it and you're like oh that's that's no good congratulations you've reached the next level no and so all of this is to say is is these are tools And in some ways, men have certainly developed them and they're cool or not cool in that way. And the scriptures always have to be the thing that you use as the foundation. And so putting names on them um, that seem academic, just just forget doing that. Unless you're getting into a, uh, you desire a career in dogmatics or or academics in terms of uh, theological study, these are just ways that people have always used to make sure that they were getting the scriptures right what does the whole bible testify about man what does the whole bible say about god you guys have covered trinity and theology proper with fred um what does it say about the church which is is coming later salvation all of these things are 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 safeguards and then what helps you make sure you're never losing sight of the big idea is that what ultimately whatever i'm reading whatever i'm sitting down to whatever application i take as i'm i'm sitting hopefully in my time of reflection and quiet time of reading is is this is this is about christ how how is this pointing me to have a greater understanding of his mercy, of his love, of his grace, of his justice, of all these things, because that's what draws you closer to him, is is just being reminded of his work. Um, So one exercise, you no, never mind, I I wrote it down, it was kind of tongue-in-cheek, never mind. Are there any questions? We have some time left. I was going to give, based on the crowd, this could get lively, I was going to say the last few minutes, if there's just theological questions, abstract ones that you've always wondered, Fred is here for you in these last 10 minutes. Yes, sir. Mm Mm-hmm. Sure. Oh, there's always, I mean, there's a danger. I would say there's two dangers in that approach. One danger is the one I mentioned earlier, where because you're ignorant of history, you don't realize that you're actually teaching something really weird, because you've kind of gone off the rails or had some kind of strange uh, position that you're, you're taking. Or you don't realize what you're teaching is condemned church history. I mean, contempt, condemned church heresy. But certainly, that's why Rome is often mentioned. The church history or, or the writings of, of what would be classified as church fathers or the early church fathers or, or the scholastics like Aquinas and Lombard and things like that, where their writings became how you taught people. Meaning, it wasn't Scripture that was the guide, it was, it was that, that church father or that scholastic's interpretation of Scripture that became the guide, much like Mishnah in the Old Testament. Now, so, so you can certainly go, go wrong. And in the same way, say we're in a Reformed-ish circle, if you will, if every time someone asks you, hey, I'm struggling with this, in life, and your answer is, well, Calvin says, you've taken it too far. You've taken rather than Scripture, and and so Scripture should always be what guides you. History is like guardrails, but it has to be, you have to be careful with that, and so that, I mentioned Calvin. That was Calvin's principle. It was exegesis, and if you want to see someone who's careful, look at his commentaries. You might not agree always with the theological position he comes to, but he was very careful on how he explains how he comes to what the Scripture means. But he has, in his theology, the Christian Institutes, um, or the Institutes, he has a formula of how every Christian should use history. And it always starts with exegesis. Drawing from Scripture. So, So if you take this 315... You're looking at that and you're going, what is this saying? This is really intriguing. There's going to be the woman and the serpent, while the serpent's being cursed, and he's going to bite the heel, but his head's going to get crushed. This is pointing, this, this sounds momentous. This one who's caused such ruin is now, in some future time, going to be crushed. And so that, that, is, that is what you're drawing from the text and then as you go through all of Scripture, you see that in Revelation, the serpent is called Satan. And we know Satan is the adversary throughout. I mean, he doesn't have a given name. He has attributes. The adversary, the accuser, and all these things. And so you're, making, you're like, oh, that's, that's, that's the serpent. That's who Satan is. And he will be what? We know what will happen to him and what's already happened to him. He's already under God's providence, but there'll be an ultimate destiny for him when he's defeated in in the fullest fashion. Well, then you have a theology built on the scriptures themselves. That's when Calvin would say, history comes in. I've built a theology of Satan based on the exegesis from this passage. What have other good commentators throughout history said about this and then you can look to the first second third fourth century and see oh there's almost a universal opinion on the same way that i've come up with it okay well let me keep checking and then you might get to some weird stuff you know in the in during the the medieval times and things like that but then you get back to the Reformation or really prior Reformation 13th century etc where you have like oh, okay it's it's almost so, so there, does that make sense? Like, there's, there seems to be a consensus in history of the church that this is who Satan is. That, that's where history and the writings of the church can be used. Yeah, Fred. also mentioned how heresy has been defined. Right. Yeah. 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 So, so that's like so you have early church confessional systems like the Apostles' <laughs> Creed. Uh, the Nicene Creed, Chalcedon, all these things that would continue on and on, all the post-Reformation confessions and catechisms, when false teaching would rise up, you would have people who were doing proper exegesis and theology in the church would rise up to meet it. And then there would be generally some type of universal confession, and the reason for it was simply to do away with a false teaching about God. And so the Apostles' Creed is doing away with a false teaching. Nicaea is doing away with false teaching, and they all have to do with, generally in the first few centuries, the deity of Christ, the humanness of Christ, um, the the equality of, of the Holy Spirit and the Son with the Father, all those things where when false teaching comes up, orthodox teaching rises up to meet it. And then you have kind of how history... Would would have these markers in the church of these confessional statements? Is that what you were getting at? Yeah. Um, so even today, like there's certain theological issues where you can actually look back in history and go, like, man, that was dealt with a long time ago. Um, and so that's where again, history can be very helpful. Um, I know my and some of this is very subjective, but for me it's it's been it's been there there's not a Sunday where when I finish I don't look to see like okay am I way off is this you know kind of thing and then there's never moments where like whoa I'm straight up heretic it's just there's moments where I might go like okay that's worded a little bit better I, that, that that actually sounds I think better than the way I've worded it and maybe I'll change it, and then I'll mention like one theologian said or one commentator said or something like that, just to let people know like that wasn't my idea. But it was synonymous with what I was thinking, but just worded better. I think that as a final note, and then I'll let you guys talk. I think it's one of the, the saddest things about modern evangelicalism it is the ignorance of, of church history. I think it does real damage to people that you will talk to that are very dogmatic. This is the only way it is. is And you're just kind of like, no, like it's not. And you're not even on the right track. Um, But that was a really long-winded way to just say that generally people like extremes and one's either... No confessions, no historical, just me and my Bible. And the other extreme is like, no, just read the, conf- all you need is to look back and see what other people wrote about Jesus. And as, as general, it's usually somewhere not on the extremes. Um, so use, use history as, as a help and a guide, never equi- equating it to scripture. Um, and quickly be ready to jettison some of your favorite Authors or theologians on certain areas. If you disagree with them, so because the Bible's clear, and you think, "Hey, you're following tradition more than your clarity of Scripture," then that's the way you go. So, okay, any questions for Fred? Question. This is gonna look weird when you're asking yourself a question? <laughs> um, going back to church history and everything, you. How does that jive with Sola Scriptura? Well, I mean, yeah, Sola Scriptura is, well, I think I just explained it, is that okay. the Bible is the guide, but Sola Scriptura doesn't mean Scripture only, which would be solo, I think, instead of Sola, it is like not Scripture and nothing else. It's that Scripture alone is God's special revelation to man. It's God's excuse It's His self disclosure. When when God is revealing Himself to man in a way that that at the very least, because He has drawn man to Himself, given Him His Spirit, so that He can understand His self disclosure in His Word, then the Word is preeminent in how everything is built. But like as I mentioned earlier, like sola scriptura and all that coming out of the Reformation, would have never been an an exclusion of of other Christian witness throughout history. How about the presence of the Spirit the in Scripture? Sure. Yeah. Is is, is the perspicuity of Scripture like the like with the Spirit? Can a Christian sit down with? Avoid of volumes of of Christian history and look at the scriptures and go. I'm a sinner and I need. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Scripture is the only infallible guide to faith and practice, but that doesn't. Other infallible guides. Uh mm-hmm. Yeah. For yourself. All right, well, uh, well, we'll close it up and, and then you guys can stick around and, and chat as usual, get some coffee uh, until um, the uh, public worship at 10.30. Uh, let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. We thank you, God, for the Son, Jesus Christ, who, while sinless, came in humiliation uh, for the purpose of being a Passover lamb for his people, gave himself for his people. We are here because we have been redeemed by the blood of Christ, called to worship. We come here on the Lord's day as a sacred assembly set apart for this time of, of gathering. Lord, may you, even now by the Spirit, be turning our hearts and minds um, in anticipation of, of this communal gathering, celebrating our union with Christ that we share with one another by the Spirit. May you be glorified in Christ's name. Amen.